Have you ever felt the wrath of God or the wrath of a physician who thought he was God? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Charles Samanow. Dr. Samanow is an instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. Dr. Samanow is a psychiatrist specializing in professional health and wellness. His research has focused on addressing professionalism in medical students, physicians, and other professionals. Today we're discussing the disruptive physician. Welcome, Dr. Samanow. It's great to have you with us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Now, behave yourself during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. Tell me, what constitutes disruptive behavior other than the obvious throwing a scalpel or you know, yelling and screaming? Well, disruptive behavior is sort of a broad term. And general definition of disruptive behavior that's been defined by you know, a variety of different entities out there. But the general consensus is that it is any type of behavior that interferes with the administration of healthcare duties. And that can be directly towards the patient, or it can be with interactions of other staff members or the institution at large. So we will see behaviors that are not only the typical ones that you think of, the aggressive, verbally acting out behaviors of throwing things, but there's also a variety of other behaviors, such as passive and passive-aggressive behaviors, refusing to do tasks, not responding to calls, documenting inappropriately in charts. All of these are also considered forms of disruptive behavior. And none of us really wants to do any of those things, at least intentionally. What percentage of physicians could be classified as disruptive? That is a number that we do not have a wonderful handle on. The estimated prevalence is around 5%, and that comes from data that is from state medical societies, licensing boards, basically referrals to the program. So these are individuals who have been identified. Obviously, though, there are many physicians who have not been identified and where this behavior is either overlooked or it's dealt with in an administrative way and doesn't come to the attention of sort of the, uh, the research community. Was there a defining moment for you that motivated you to become involved in solving the problem of the disruptive provider? Did you ever incur the wrath yourself of another physician? Certainly, I think most of us in our medical training can look back and identify moments of disruptive behavior. I can't say that there's one particular moment, but I distinctly, through my medical training, remember medical student harassment and, frankly, abuse as being part of my training experience and something that I felt was not only unprofessional for everyone who was involved in it, but in terms of the message it sent me as a trainee, I thought it was a wrong message and something that we really need to work from the top down in terms of instilling professionalism in those who are training and interacting with students, nurses, physician assistants, and, and the whole team. So, Now with what you know about behavior, you're a trained psychiatrist, how would you respond? Because I think diffusing the situation is something also that would be a great takeaway message from a program like this. It's very easy to look at disruptive behavior as simply someone being a bad doctor or someone having emotional problems or being out of control. And I think what we've tried in developing the distressed physician program and course is to try to look at these individuals as, I'll put sick in quotation marks, to say that these are individuals who are experiencing their own personal issues, personal distress, and that there's sort of a nasty interaction between the individual's problems and perhaps some institutional problems. And you get what is a perfect storm effect. And so in our solution to trying to work with these professionals, 
professionals. The goal is to help them recognize how to change the things that they're able to change and then to realize the things that they're not able to change but at least have more self-awareness. So we look at, you know, family of origin issues, emotional intelligence, some of these things that psychiatrists are accused of being touchy-feely about, but in trying to make individuals aware of their behavior, aware of the rules, and trying to adjust their behavior to confine more to those rules. These are not bad people, bad doctors, but individuals who have, you know, maybe let some of their own personal problems take control of their lives rather than them taking control of it themselves. I remember back in medical school, and I'm not sure I answered all the questions, honestly, but I remember them giving us the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Index. Can you predict from medical school Who's going to become a disruptive provider? Again, there's not a lot of good data out of there. The only data that I'm aware of is that in terms of unprofessional behavior, now that doesn't necessarily mean disruptive, although disruptive falls under that larger umbrella. The research out of the University of San Francisco looking at performance in the clinical clerkships and evaluations of medical students who were being dinged for unprofessional behavior early on was the most predictive of licensure problems later on in their careers. So it does seem that unprofessional behavior early on predicts later unprofessional behavior, but that's about as sophisticated of the research that I know. There are not particular personality profiles from the MMPI, or I know they've done Myers-Briggs, uh, a lot of work on that with medical students, but there isn't a consistent profile that's predictive. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Charles Samanow from George Washington University Medical Center. We're discussing the disruptive physician. I'm a pediatrician, and bullying is a big issue these days, much more common than anybody really would think is going on. Are disruptive physicians bullies? To some extent, yes. When we use the large term disruptive physician, there's a variety of different individuals, but the more aggressive acting outs, we do see bullying behavior and some of the things such as personal insecurities manifesting themselves through narcissism or aggressive acting out, some of that same sort of pathology that you see in the bullying literature, we do see in some of these more aggressive physicians. You mentioned the issues with medical students being a victim, so to speak, during medical school. Is the issues of conduct, how not to be a disruptive physician, the communication skills, are they currently being taught in medical schools? Is that something maybe you're working on at George Washington where you're setting up a program? It's certainly something that we're working on. Both at Vanderbilt, we worked very hard at this, and here at George Washington, we're starting to work at this. I have tried to assess at other medical schools what's going on, but it's very patchy. I would say the short answer to your question is no, we do a very bad job at this. We've got to remember that most physicians do quite well. The disruptive physician is a small percentage, although I think at times all of us have our moments in the hospital when we may not have behaved as well as we would have liked. But the point is the individuals who have a persistent pattern of behavior that's disruptive, we do a very poor job screening for that. We do a very poor job training, you know, more assertive communication skills, setting good professional boundaries. A lot of that stuff comes through residency training on the job, but it's never really formally taught. So that is an area that we're very interested at teaching. The current trend is to teach more self-awareness, and a lot of medical schools have done that through spirituality and alternative medicine electives that have been put into the 
curriculum, and in some schools they're now requirements. So that's a start. But in terms of frank communication skills, behavior, professionalism, we talk about it. You know, we have lectures and didactics, but to quote a dean at George Washington University just the, the other day, you know, we teach all of our students all these wonderful messages about professionalism, and then they get into the third year and they see the exact opposite of everything we taught. Now, in the article you published, Consequences of Physician Disruptive Behavior, you said, and I hope I'm quoting you correctly, every individual should have a part of his or her compensation attached to a dimension of the organization's strategic goals. Now, apropos to what the dean just said, um, have doctors at George Washington actually lost money for being disruptive? I am not aware that that right now is part of the overall salary package or performance goals. I mean, all of us undergo annual reviews, and professionalism is a core area that we are evaluated on. But I don't believe that it's intricately interwoven into the way that we're reimbursed. One of the things that uh, I mentioned, I'm on a credentials committee and also a risk management at my hospital. I'd really like to see the behavior issue part of credentialing and even communication training or behavior management training required for any physician who's got a track record, you know, of disruption. Right. Well, I think not just for the track record physicians. Vanderbilt did a very interesting program called in-flight training, and it was for how to communicate in stressful situations, and it was based on the air traffic controllers. And every staff member at Vanderbilt was required to go to this in-flight training center where scenarios were given and you were taught communication skills, how to be assertive, you know, uh, a nurse to be able to speak up to a doctor and say, you know, I'm noticing something here that I don't feel comfortable with. And actually you were awarded wings that you wore on your white coat once you completed this training. So Vanderbilt took it on very seriously, communication skills as a way of preventing medical errors. So that was one program that they implemented and was required of the medical staff and many of the residents. What do you think is the next step that a hospital needs to take, an administration needs to take, to create a better work environment where this bad communication doesn't take place? What we are working on is a culture a culture within the hospital. This is based, again, a lot by the work that was done at Vanderbilt. Anderson Spickard is a leader at Vanderbilt who, after several physician suicides, set up a physician wellness committee that then again drifted. And this is the pattern that we see across the country. All these professional programs aimed at physician behavior started around substance abuse and suicide, but now they're drifting more towards, okay, you know, we've gotten the substance abusing physician down. We know what to do. We know how to handle that. Physician suicide, you know, that's a problem, not one that I'd say anyone could say we've mastered, but we're aware of it. We're working at resources to try to identify physicians with depression, bipolar, and get them help. But now this, this area of disruptive behavior is something that you're seeing the state medical society physician programs hospital, physician wellness committees, you know, executives such as yourself, really interested in. And I think the key is a culture that does not tolerate this type of behavior. So there is a proactive approach to have a culture of wellness to try to make physicians have less burnout, but also one that prevents the enabling that goes on. So it's interesting. Schools can have zero tolerance when it comes to violence, but we can't have it in our hospitals. 
Exactly. We haven't. And the reason for that is is that many of these disruptive physicians are some of our biggest moneymakers. Uh, and I know that sounds very cynical, but it's the truth. When you have a guy who, particularly at some of the smaller regional hospitals, you know, in outlying communities, who is operating, uh, bringing in millions and millions of dollars, is acting very disruptive, the hospital often will do things that enables the behavior because they don't want to lose this guy. They don't want to lose him. And it's not until a critical incident occurs where someone's either harmed or there's a huge nursing complaint or a patient complaint that then all of a sudden, you know, this becomes not tolerated. And so trying to instill a culture which is saying, you know, we value you as a professional and we think you're an outstanding physician, but, you know, your behavior is not tolerable. That's the direction we need to move in. I'd like to thank Dr. Charles Samenow, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing disruptive physician behavior at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I leave you with the words of William Alger. Man often makes up in wrath what they want in reason. I invite you to listen to our on-demand library at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code radio and receive six months of free streaming audio. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health. Hi, this is Dr. Jeffrey Kay with Oregon Health and Science University and the Portland VA Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Every chance I get, I listen to the channel for medical professionals. Reach MD, XM-157.